All right, Coffee and Theology on Wednesday, July 13th. It's 821, 821 a.m. in Tulsa. Uh, we've got a smaller group on today because we have a number of our regular uh, participants who are have, have received new job positions or new schedules, and they are not able to join us at this time of the morning. So we're grateful for those that were able to join on and those that are listening afterward. We bid you peace, and we missed you on the call today for sure. Um, today, I want to continue our discussion on, um, on what it means to be a person who lives from the, the root system of original sin or being originally cursed, um, and then juxtaposed to what that would mean to live from a culture of blessing, um, knowing that you um, indeed are the beloved in Christ and that your root system is going down deep into the soil of blessing. Um, then, I mean, that those sort of, those things sound a little bit top, uh, top side, a little surface, you know, like, okay, am I cursed or am I blessed? Or am I fundamentally sinful or am I fundamentally um, righteous? And so I think that is the conversation that we've been in and I'm going to take us down to a place where the rubber meets the road. Okay. So what does we have been, we're going to continue talking about these things in su on Sundays and more on coffee and theology. I think we could probably do this for the next couple of years, be unpacking this topic because everything kind of comes down to that. It does, what is it similarly, what does it sound like of what we've been talking about in coffee and theology for the last um, three or four years? What do the two um, two sides um, remind you of? You got this uh, this original sin and cursing, and you've got this um, blessing in life. What does it remind you of? To the two trees, mm -hmm. two trees. I was going to say the trees. Yeah. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life that we have always. Um, kind of come back to we've made jokes about we can't ever have a discussion without going back to the garden and back to the two trees but it's the day that you eat as we know from our beloved bob that when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil without apart from the tree of life that is the moment that you begin to die and not see the light the life um that is and so the tree of life is Jesus, the tree of life most practically. This does not have to be ethereal. It is just Jesus. It is the word, the life, um, the tree of life is Jesus. And so anything that we study um, academically, when our eyes are opened to good and evil, those um, very present forces in our world, and in within ourselves when we are open to those things and we understand that life is mysterious and complicated and nuanced and not try to only uh, pretend that it is all good and roses and puppy dogs and bunny rabbits but um it is in fact pretty nuanced and uh, the caricature of a life lived in blessing is is also going to be nuanced because there are going to be things that happen in our lives that we can't explain, that don't feel like a blessing, that if this were true, then that would not be happening. Right? <laughs> if if we are blessed, then 
this kind of fill in the blank um, doesn't seem like a blessing. So some things that happened uh, with me and uh, always thinking about the the reality of the cross, the reality of the, the, the cross event in the scriptures um, and how that was a mindset shift for all of us, um, all of humanity, to have a mindset um, shift around the cross event. It's a real event that happened in real history, really on a timeline. We can count before the whole world seems to acknowledge that there was a before cross and an after cross. <laughs> we have a BC and an AD or, an, or a CE or a BCE. Um, we know that there's a mark in time that changed everything, and and it and it did. It it changed everything. Um, there's more into that. We do we do believe that mysteriously and, and um, mystically, we know that that it was Christ that was crucified before the foundation of the world. So we understand that mysteriously. We're on a faith by faith. We understand that God already put the redemption in place before anything in our own minds was messed up or the fall occurred. Um, but then there was a point in time that it actually happened. Um, and so we understand that some things are timeless and some things are time bound. And the the redemption is a timeless thing, but the the actual cross event actually, you know, happened in time and happened right here on our own soil. It happened right here. And so as I relate to that in my own spiritual walk and i think about why that happened um always turning that around in my head always turning it around turning around the cross sin heaven hell all those things that are the building blocks of our religious foundation you know why how what does it mean and so the other morning some things had happened in my own life where i was feeling that things were not fair um it was coming to me that it, the things that were coming to me felt um, like I wasn't being, uh, it, it almost seemed like in, in a sense some fa like false accusations against myself, you know, things that I, were believe that I was believing about myself that were false. And then it seemed that um, even, even others, that there were some like, the accusations that were coming to me didn't it didn't I could not make them real. I couldn't make them true. I I'm always a person that wants to look at my own faults. And when people bring their criticisms, constructive or otherwise, I like to think see what truth is in that for me, so that I can grow. You know, if someone has a problem with me. Um, I, I always like to hear it out, you know, what is it? And then see if there's any truth, understand what's mine, um, be honest about what's theirs, and then move on and hopefully find a place of peace and agreement. Um, but I found myself after a couple of these scenarios, I found myself wanting to read all four of the accounts of the betrayal of Jesus um, in the garden and Jesus's agony and pain in the garden in Gethsemane, and then um, leading into Peter's denial of Jesus and just that whole real thick portion of the passion that walks us through, you know, these really amazing events where Jesus is 
um, sold out by Judas, is betrayed by Judas. Um, the Sanhedrin and um, chief priests and stuff, um, the people working for them came and arrested Jesus in the garden. And, uh, um, and then ultimately the whole idea of, of Jesus being uh, tortured and then ultimately um, hung on the cross and, and crucified. And so all the words that were surrounding those things, I wanted to, um, I, had, I had, had sensed that there was a parallel and of what the, the feelings that I was feeling, the only way that I could get some kind of identification or that someone had gone through what I was feeling was going to be found in these stories in like in this in these passages. So I spent the morning reading all four accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and just a little bit of Bible trivia. Um, Mark was was likely written first and is the shortest account that we have of the life of Jesus. And then it goes on from there and Matthew gets really big and blossoms like Mark only has like 15 or 16 chapters, whereas Matthew has like 27 or 28 chapters. And so most of um, most of Mark is contained in Matthew. Then you go over to Luke. Luke is a little shorter than Matthew. Um, and about over half of Mark is is also um, encapsulated in in Luke. Um, so they all um, sort of um, they're called the synoptic gospels because they see the life of Jesus very similarly. Sin optic, S-Y-N, sin, the synonymous and the optic being vision. Um, so it's they see the same uh, they see the life of Jesus or the topic the same way. And then whereas John kind of stands alone, John is uh, more of a mystical version of of Jesus, which I happen to really love. Um, where in John, you don't get a birth story of Jesus. Um, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get all the details as they saw it of Jesus's birth and as it relates to Mary and Joseph and all of that and places and names of cities and towns and kind of the whole journey of how Jesus became human. But in John, you know, John is just like, hey, I get this on a deeper level. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. No details necessary because that's not the point. It's about this other bigger thing of this God is becoming flesh. This word of God that existed from the beginning of God became flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. And John goes on to say all these beautiful things It's where we get John 3.16, for God so loved the world and gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And moving on, it goes into like some really hard sayings of Jesus in John 6 and 7, where Jesus said, My he this is where he lost most of his church. Um, the first the first falling away of uh <laughs> Jesus's followers was in John 6 when he's like, Hey, my blood is is drink indeed, and my body is food indeed. If you do not drink my blood and eat my body, you have no part of me. And they were all offended and left him. You know, they're like, what a ridiculous thing to say. And this is how John's gospel continues to move on. I mean, we have in John's gospel, you have the only account of the woman being caught in the act of adultery. 
and they brought her to Jesus and Jesus says the, to him who has no sin, you cast the first stone. That's the only time we see that story was in John. We don't have any account of that in Matthew, Mark, Mark or Luke and on and on and on it goes. Really cool prayers in the garden in John, um, praying for all of us, um, those that he had with him and those that were to come. So in John, you have some really sweet and tender um, pericopes, as they like to say them. That's the word for these little snippets of, of uh, the stories that are found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that kind of stand alone because there's this other source that they were calling from that we don't um, we don't talk a lot about in church studies, but it's called the Q, the Q source, or it, and actually Q means the source, but it's these kind of oral traditions and other written documents even that were pulled from um, that people don't know exactly where they came from or who wrote them, but they know that they existed and they had other parts of the life of Jesus and the sayings of Jesus that were that they pulled from to make their accounts um, in Matthew and Luke. So anyway, um, I <laughs> anyway, I was wanted to read all of the accounts of that because they differ just ever so slightly. And what I want to talk today about, and this is going to surprise you that I'm going to say this word, but I want to talk today about envy and jealousy. Envy and jealousy as they relate to our experience in everyday life. Um, and this is why I came to that. So if you want to follow along, I'm going to read a little bit about the betrayal um, in Matthew 27. Matthew 27. Um, Matthew 27. Okay, so we've moved on from the supper, the last supper that he had with his disciples and the betrayal and arrest. Um, we're already past the um, Jesus praying in, in the garden. And when morning came, verse 1 of Matthew 27, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus in order to bring, him, bring about his death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he repented and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He said, I have, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. I don't know if you guys knew that, but Judas did that. Judas went and killed, completed suicide in that moment. But the chief priests taking the pieces of silver said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since they are blood money. After conferring together, they used them to buy the potter's field as a place to bury foreigners. For this reason, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one on whom a price had been set, on whom some of the people of Israel had set a price, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Now Jesus <clears throat> stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, It is as you say. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. And Pilate said to him, 
do you not hear how many accusations they make against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the festival, the governor was accustomed to releasing a prisoner for the crowd, anyone whom they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. So after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he realized that it was out of envy that they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that innocent man for today. I have suffered a great deal of a dream because of a dream about him. I want to stop right there and go back up to that verse 18. Look at that. For he realized that it was out of envy that they had handed him over. They realized that it was out of envy. Um, some say it was out of jealousy. Out of jealousy. Um, I, I was interested that it was in that account. That's in Matthew. Now go over to Mark. Matthew, Mark. Go to Mark 15. So again, we've gone through the Peter's denial, Jesus praying in Gethsemane, and the betrayal and arrest. And we're there in front of Pilate. And we're at Mark 15, 10. All right, backing up to eight. So the crowd came and began to ask Pilate, I'm in verse eight, to do for them according to his custom. But he, then he answered them, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he realized that it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed him over. Out of envy. Some of your translations might say it was out of jealousy. So in my state of mind that I was coming to these scriptures from, um, seeing the words betrayal and accusations um, and Jesus holding his words, not speaking back, not trying to justify himself, but whatever they said of him, he said, it is as you say, it is. It is whatever you say it is. He didn't try to correct them or defend his position. He let them believe what they wanted to believe. He let them believe it. Um, he let them believe what they wanted to believe about him. And in another passage, so this word envy obviously was really standing out to me that that this major event that changed the course of human history <laughs> two places is saying it was because of envy it was because of envy and jealousy so i went to my resource guide about um, complicated emotions and i've been 
um, having Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart on my desk for uh, all of this year and referencing uh, referencing emotions as she has so beautifully done in this book. Um, so Envy and Jealousy, I'm reading from Brene Brown's book, Atlas of the Heart, uh, page 25. Let me be the first to say that I've been using these words all wrong. And she's talking about envy and jealousy. I'm pretty sure it's because, like most people, I don't like to say that I'm feeling envious, even when I am. I'd rather offer a friendly, man, that's amazing, I'm so jealous. But as it turns out, I'm probably not jealous when I say that. I'm envious. But I don't like the way that sounds, so here's what I've learned. There are several debates about the inner workings of envy and jealousy. But there seems to be a consensus that these are two significantly different emotions, starting with these definitions. Envy occurs when we want something that another person has. Jealousy is when we fear losing a relationship or a valued part of a relationship that we already have. According to the researchers Richard H. Smith and Sung Hee Kim, envy typically involves two people and occurs when one lacks something enjoyed by another. The target of envy, envy may be a person or a group of persons, but the focus of envy is that one lacks something compared with a specific target, whether it be a target individual or a target group. While jealousy typically involves three people and occurs when one fears losing something or someone to another person. Envy and jealousy result from different situations. They generate distinct appraisals and produce distinctive emotional experiences. So envy, when we want something that another person has. So the roots of resentment are envy and jealousy. So let's read a little bit about resentment. And all of this, keeping this in the scope of the cross event, in the, in the scope of what I've just read, that the whole reason that they handed Jesus over was because of envy. So now I'm going to look at just the next word over, which is resentment. Understanding resentment, how it works, I'm reading from Brene, in my life, where it comes from and how I stay out of it, has been one of my lifelong struggles. This is not something that's easy for me to share with you because on top of struggling with resentment, I'm judgmental toward my own resentment. Let me explain. We know from the, from the research that unwanted identity is the most powerful eliciter of shame. An unwanted identity is the most powerful eliciter of shame. If you want to know what's likely to trigger shame for you, just fill in this sentence stem. It's really important for me not to be perceived as. Resent, resentful and bitter are definitely on my list. So I struggle with feeling resentment and I struggle with how struggling with resentment makes me feel. For years, I assumed that resentment was a form of anger related to my perfectionism. I mostly felt resentful toward people whom I perceived to be not working or sacrificing or grinding or perfecting or advocating as hard as I was. 
You want to see me go into full tilt resentment? Just watch someone tell me, yeah, I stopped working on it. It's not exactly perfect, but it's good enough. Or I know it's due tomorrow, but I'm wiped out, so I'm packing it in. Or I don't get involved in those issues. They really don't affect me. Ugh. When people say that, it's on, she says. I'm reading again from Brene Brown. I've spent decades working on my perfectionism, and that helped, but resentment remained an issue. Then all of a sudden, in one sentence, my life changed. I was interviewing the emotions researcher and writer, Mark Brackett, for our Unlocking Us podcast, and we were chatting before the actual recording started. Out of the blue, I said, before we start, I've got a personal question. Is resentment part of the anger family? Without hesitation, Mark replied, no, resentment is part of envy. Oh, holy shit, she says. I'm not mad because you're resting. I'm mad because I'm so bone tired and I want to rest. But unlike you, I'm going to pretend that I don't need to. That's what resentment says. And another one. I'm not furious that you're okay with something that's really good and imperfect. I'm furious because I want to be okay with something that's really good and imperfect. And another one. Your lack of work is not making me resentful. It's my lack of rest that's making me resentful. My life changed. Maybe it's unfair to say that it changed in one sentence because I've been curious and committed to figuring out my resentment for 26 years. Maybe it's a case of when the student is ready, the teacher appears. But why 26 years? Because I remember the moment I saw resentment in another person and thought, oh no, she's so unlikable, so awful, so painfully relatable. I don't want to be that person. <laughs> it was 1995 and I was alone at the movie theater watching Home for the Holidays. It's a funny, smart movie directed by Jodie Foster about adult children gathering at their parents' house on Thanksgiving Day. Two siblings, played by Holly Hunter and Robert Downey Jr., are unconventional free spirits who have both moved away and maintained a close relationship. Then there's the sister, played brilliantly by Cynthia Stevenson, who never left, who takes care of the parents more, more than they'd like, who is paralyzed by perfectionism and whose rigidity makes her the brunt of family jokes. She's bitter and resentful and exhausted. After dinner goes very wrong and a turkey ends up in the perfect sister's lap, she and her obnoxiously uptight family leave. Then there's a scene when Cynthia Stevenson's character is in the basement of her house working out on her Stairmaster, and Holly Hunter's character comes over to apologize for Thanksgiving turning into a circus. The resentful sister goes off about how she's the only one who grew up and how the other two have shirked all of their responsibilities and how she now has to bear alone. After she says something really cruel to Holly Hunter's character, she looks down at the Stairmaster and signals for her sister to leave. Do you mind? This is the only thing I do all day that I like. Yikes. I don't think I've ever been that bad, but as I said, it was painfully relatable. And scary to think that I can even be on that trajectory. Now when I start to feel resentful, instead of thinking, what is that person doing wrong? Or what should they be doing? I think, what do I need, but I'm afraid to ask for? While resentment is definitely an emotion, I normally recognize it by familiar thought pattern. What mean and critical thing am I rehearsing, saying to this person? 
I say all of that because it's highly uh, relatable and practical. But because I found the word envy, and as I looked it up in both of those accounts of Matthew and Mark, all of this uh, betrayal, gosh, you have betrayal, denial, uh, violence, a pursuit of a desire that is grounded in envy, and now we know related to resentment by the people who were against Jesus. As I pondered these things and I was considering um, this whole event and why it had to happen, I was in kind of a meditative state as I was rehearsing all of these words that I had found and envy just like in a word cloud was like the biggest word on the word cloud in my mind. And I thought, the cross, the crucifixion is a picture, among other things, of an ultimate projection. An ultimate projection of the people onto Jesus. It was not true what they were accusing him of. And yet it was true. One of the accusations is that he was the son of God. Yeah, but not the way they thought that that meant. Not they betrayed him, the Judas character, the projection of that, the greed of for a little bit of money, I'll sell him out. To, maybe not even realizing. We, we see him hang himself. He didn't even realize what he was doing. He didn't realize the gravity of the situation. He didn't realize that actually he got hung up on something and followed a trail that led him to, to somewhere he really authentically didn't want to go. He became the accuser. He got on the accuser side, the betrayal side. And then that word judgment seat, that's right after that word envy. It was just fascinating to me that that we see these characters where, you know, and I, I'm not sure that I relate to just one. I, I sort of relate to all of it. I relate to all of the characters in this story. The denial, the envy, the betrayal. We often think, we don't often put ourselves inside of these stories because it's like, well, that is like the most major event of all history. Like, what do I have to do with that story? Where am I in that? I would invite you to try to think about it. Think about where you are in that story. So then I started to think, what are all the ways that Paul and Jesus told us that we need to take up our own cross and follow Jesus? Well, even Jesus had said in Luke Luke 9, 23, that whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross and follow me. This is before there was a cross event, at least chronology, chronologically in that story. Jesus is telling them in advance, you must take up your own cross and follow me. 
And what would that mean for us in practical living, practical daily living? What, how might we find ourselves having cross events in our own lives? Ones in which we are the accusers, the ones carrying clubs, the ones holding the swords, the ones coming to punctuate the point that there's something wrong with this guy. There's something wrong with them. And we have evidence that would show that, that this guy needs to be taken out, that this guy is wrong. And it, it's interesting in our in our daily conversations, daily dramas, in our lives with friends and groups, life and work, work group, work friends, how we how we get on to something. We get we get caught up by in our own desires, our own thoughts about who's the worst. Who's the instigator? Who's the problem? Where's the problem here? Where, who's to blame? And who's really stirring the pot on this deal? Consider it of that if we want to be a disciple of Jesus, that we are going to, by instruction of the master, have to take up our own cross and follow him. Well, what would that mean practically? It it may look like absorbing false accusations. It may look like not opening your mouth when the crusade is against you. It might, it might look like not defending yourself, or it might look like if you're the pilot character in this story that you have to remove, you have to get out of the judgment seat and instead put yourself in a seat of mercy. Or it may look like you have to look at your own envy and why you're saying the things that you're saying. Or maybe why are other people saying what they're saying, even though they say, no, what you did was wrong and unfair. Was it? <laughs> or, or are these accusations coming from a place of envy? jealousy and resentment which if like paul said so beautifully in other parts of letters that he wrote that paul said it is unwise to compare ourselves amongst ourselves it is the most unwise thing we could do because somebody's always going to come up better than us and someone's going to come up worse than us and staying in that comparison game is what I'm arguing is what we're being called to, to plant ourselves in a blessing culture, to plant ourselves in a culture of generosity and blessing where there's not a scarcity of identity. There's not a scarcity to go of love or scarcity of blessing or a scarcity of goods to go around, but everybody gets everything that they need and their needs are supplied. Um, so, talk, so in thinking in about that, I want to take us to Galatians 5.24, where, you know, if you think about this as you continue to consider what this means for you personally, how many times did these authors say, crucify your flesh daily, or take up your cross, or follow in the sufferings of Christ, um, or put away the desires of the flesh and take on the 
put on the mind of Christ. And and so what does that actually mean? Um, it, I, and I would argue that to understand what that actually means, you have to look at the cross event. <laughs> you have to look at the main the pinnacle, the climax of Jesus's life, not just in Jesus's teachings in the synagogue and the temple and uh, the miracles, the love that he showed, the the judgment that he pronounced on on evil, but you have to actually look at the cross event. And then within that cross event, we're going to find the elements of daily human life, daily human life. And if you, you know, it's going to, it's sort of like, all right, well, whose disciple are you going to be in the cross event story? In the, the, the betrayal, the agony in the garden, the prayer in the garden, the agony, the betrayal, the denial. Whose disciple are we going to be in which ground are we going to plant ourselves? Are we going to be Peter's disciple? Or, you know, are we going to have a pattern of denial? A pattern of denial in our lives where we go along for a while and then all of a sudden we're like, wait, I, I wasn't part of any of that. You know, yeah, these things are really applicable to our to our emotional lives, you know, or this this idea that you get in over your head and you get in over your head, you buy the lie, you 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 desperate for money, desperate for prestige, desperate for position, desperate to posture yourself and you find yourself betraying the son of God. I mean, dear Lord, you know, whose disciple are we going to be in these things? And I would argue, friends, we've all been the disciple of every one of these characters. We've all been guilty of, of every one of these patterns. And but we're being called to a higher way to actually take the the um, the character of Jesus the character of Jesus in this scenario. So look at this in Galatians 5, and we'll close out. Galatians 5, 24, 26 through 26. Those who understand that their righteousness is of Christ and that it does not come as a reward for their ability to keep the law have discovered that their flesh with its dictates and lusts were co-crucified with Christ because faith defines us and not flesh. Faith, our faith, our Christ life defines us and not our flesh. We take our lead from the spirit in our daily conduct. There is an authority in our step. We are matching in rank with Christ. This is fantastic. Listen to this in verse 26. Quit your efforts to try and impress one another. The law of works reduces your life to envious comparison and petty competition, while love only seeks the advantage of the other. This means total freedom from any external law. Friends, I just want you to see that juxtaposition that when we understand that our blessing and our seated rootedness and identity in Christ comes by faith and the faith of the Son of God, that not even your faith, but your your little tiny mustard seed faith connected with Jesus's faith, you when you understand that your life is not defined by your flesh and that your life cannot be taken from you, um, your wills and desires cannot be taken from you, but instead 
like Jesus, like Jesus in the story, we freely lay them down, like he said in John 10. No one takes my life from me. Well, the way to really get that down in your practical daily living is no one is going to make me apologize or uh, be humiliated without me first giving it to them. No one strips me of my dignity, identity, or respect. I freely lay it down. So if you're in a situation where, you know, we use that term, you have to fall on the sword, where you're having to take a wrong that you really didn't do, when you're having to suck it up, so to speak, and say, okay, I'm going to be the bigger person here. I'm going to take the higher road. I would submit that those are moments in our lives where we are following in the way of Jesus. We are following in the way of the cross. I mean, I'm talking about when this is authentically unfair, authentically um, accusatory. I know some folks going through that right now, just authentically accused of things that they didn't do. I mean, this is a reality. This is a reality that happens. And I would argue that if you have and are living in that moment, in the mind of Christ, and you find yourself um, feeling moved to just simply keep your mouth shut, or or, or simply say, "I I hear you. I I hear what you're saying." And gosh, I understand, and I have compassion for you. And and that while while I don't agree that that's how it was, I I really respect how you see it, and I'm going to quit my efforts as in Galatians 5:26 quit your efforts to try and impress one another <laughs> for the law of works reduces your life to envious comparisons and petty competition that's what we just saw in those accounts that it was for envy that they had handed him over it was because of jealousy envy yeah they wanted something that they didn't think they had they wanted his, they wanted what he had. They wanted how he was showing up in the world. They wanted his fame or they wanted his confidence of being the son of God or his confidence of being related to God. And for that sake, it's like, kill it, kill that confidence, kill that character, kill that courage. You have people in your life doing that to you, or are you guilty of doing that to other people? Killing somebody's, you know, emerging power or emerging confidence or, you know, somebody's advancing life more than you are or you are more than them. And the tendency is to squash in one way or to shoot arrows and daggers in the other direction. But the, the call of the gospel, the call of the cross is to don't go that way. But it, either justification or of accusation, but instead go the higher way go the way of the cross and realize that if you know where you've come from and you know who you are in christ and you know where you're going when it's all said and done you can take off your robe of posturing and kneel down in front of your friends and wash their feet because you we realize that our power is not taken from us, but we freely give it. Um, that's what I had to say today um, about the cross and envy and resentment. 
um, and the practical way of applying this gospel message, at least with regard to envy and resentment today. God bless you guys for listening. Uh, we've certainly run out of time to have any feedback on the recording, but we'll take some questions after this is over. God bless you. May this word continue to grow and manifest in your life.